0: Hey friends, so glad you could join me. I have a new friend to introduce you to. His name is Martin Dugard, and he has written approximately 1 billion books. (laughs) Not quite, but he is very famous for his Killing series. I am sure you have seen them. Like Killing Lincoln, he co-writes them with Bill O'Reilly. 18 million people have purchased his Killing series, which is basically about the death or attempted assassinations of various historic figures. So he has a new book out that I wanted to talk to him about called Taking Paris, which is about World War II. I know you're interested in World War II because it's fascinating. So let's dive into this conversation about Taking Paris with my new friend, Martin Dugard. I'm Sharon McMahon and welcome to the Sharon Says So podcast. Martin, thank you so much for joining me. What a delight to speak with you today.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. It's it's fantastic to be invited.
0: I was excited to read your new book, Taking Paris. First of all, Americans are fascinated with World War II, right? I mean, kind of obsessed with it.
1: It's a thing. There's no such thing as a foolproof subject for a book, but writing about World War II is a pretty good way to find an audience.
0: What makes us so fascinated by it? Far more than other wars.
1: Well, you know, there's a theory that if a war can be good, that it was the last good war because, you know, it really was good versus evil. And evil had triumphed so incredibly well, so early, like when the Germans just spread, you know, just all across Europe and, and just took the continent by storm. And they seemed unstoppable. And somebody had to step in and put a halt to it. And that's when the good guys came in, you know, Britain, England, uh, America, at some point, the French with the Free French.
0: It was easy to distinguish. These are the forces of good, these are the bad guys. Whereas a lot of other wars, a lot of other time periods, that concept is so much more nebulous.
1: Yeah, we don't fight wars like this anymore. The whole idea of tanks rolling across a nation, like, you know, when the Germans went from one side of France to the other in May 1940, tanks and infantry, everybody's wearing uniforms you can distinguish who's what. Now, you know, now we're fighting guerrilla forces more often. You you don't know who the enemy is because they slip back into the population as soon as the battle's over.
0: Mm -hmm. So true. You are a prolific author, by the way. And you have written so many bestsellers. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but how did you land on this concept? I mean, you really probably could call your agent and be like, hello, my next book will be X. Please find me a publisher. You could probably write about anything at this point. You've written all of the killing books, like killing Lincoln, killing Reagan. You've written so many popular books. You could probably write your own ticket. And don't try to pretend that's not true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're, you're so you're really
0: so <laughs> what was it about this story where you were like, this is what I need to write next? Because this is a massive undertaking.
1: First of all, I'm kind of on a mission to make people love history the way I love history. And I just think history is fascinating. But I think all too often, history is written in a very slow, boring, academic way. It's the reason people didn't like history class in high school, because it's always presented as something dull, you should feel the passion. So I decided I wanted to write a book that was very fast-paced. It felt like a, like a James Patterson thriller. Uh, lots of detail, lots of you are there, cinematic qualities, short chapters so people get the successful feeling that comes when you finish a chapter. The last thing I want people to say is this is a boring book, and I mm-hmm. wanted to write some really good, exciting history. And I've been doing that with the killing series, but I wanted to take it over into something more sprawling, like warfare, because Mm -hmm. you you have so many things going on. And I originally was going to write about Rome. My wife and I were visiting Italy, and I thought this is a great place to to set a book because, you know, we had the the Anzio landings, and we took Rome in in 1944. As I was setting up that story, I, I realized that the whole story had to circle all the way back to the German invasion in May 1940. And not just include Rome a few years later, but also include Paris. And then the focus completely shifted from Rome to Paris. And then, you know, then I started doing the research, and I found all these great characters. You know, amazingly, I thought it was a bunch of dudes the whole time, but a lot of women involved, which was really cool. You know, women in the resistance. Uh, an American spy named Virginia Hall, who had one leg and who evaded the Nazis. So I had all these really rich characters, and I was able to build them into the narrative. And then that's when I went to my agent and said, hey, this is what I've got.
0: <laughs> Here is so. what I have come up with now. What you just said is was one of the takeaways I had when I was reading your book. I'm like, this book moves along. The chapters oh, are short. You achieved your mission of I am going to craft a narrative that. The reader wants to move through. So I, I think people will appreciate that about Taking Paris, that it moves along and it reads like a novel.
1: Oh, thanks. I mean, that and that was the intent. It should feel like the book version of a Netflix miniseries. Mm. Like every chapter, there's a narrative thread for every character and, and you, you're just reading this little miniseries. And by the end of it, you you should feel like you know everything there is to know about that subject. I want to take mm. you right all the way from soup to nuts.
0: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tell me more about your research process because people are always very curious. I'm sure you get asked that all the time. How do you go about researching a book like this?
1: Usually uh, the first thing I do is buy a plane ticket. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I want to I want to go to the places, but I couldn't do that with COVID. So mm-hmm. I was literally gonna to go to Paris on March 24th,
0: 2020. Oh my goodness.
1: And then you know it all went up. You know, my wife mm-hmm. comes along with me, and next thing you know, um the good news is I covered the Tour de France as a journalist for 10 years back in the you know nineteen ninety nine to 2009. So I still had Tons of uh, research material from notebooks about the many cities I've been to, so I could describe them fairly well. And then, uh, just for the visuals in the book, Google Earth, Google Maps. It was it's a really weird way to research a book, but you know you want to know what things look like. If I'm going to describe it, I've got to see it. Uh, and then the usual stuff like going through YouTube videos of Churchill speeches and uh, various archives. You know, especially newspaper archives because. You know, you go to like the New York Times or one of the, or the Times of London, and you look at the newspaper archives, they had reporters that were there witnessing the events and describing it in detail. And then you take their description, then, and then you kind of pivot and look at somebody else's description of the same event. And then you do the on the ground research and you combine all those things, you put them on the page, and then it's always too much. Then you start taking out the stuff that is not really necessary. It can be a lengthy process. I mean, I like to write a thousand words a day. Sometimes with this book, because I was trying to be so tight in particular, I, you know, I might get 200 words a day, and that's, that's like two good paragraphs, but it's all worth it if it reads well.
0: Mm. I have enjoyed reading more about your process for some of the other books that you've written where you were like, well, I guess I'm swimming with sharks. <laughs> or, <laughs> or I guess I'm going to travel to a very, very distant land to research my book. Tell us more about some of the adventures you've gone on in researching books. Obviously, your adventures were hampered by COVID with this book, but tell us some of the adventures you've been on writing other books.
1: One of the the blessings of my profession is that I can build a book around the places that I want to travel to. So, (laughs) And it's like, for instance, with my book, Into Africa, Uh, I wasn't necessarily interested in Stanley and Livingston at first, but I had never seen a lion in the wild, and I really wanted to see a lion in the wild, and I wanted to be able to write off that trip, so the (laughs) way you do it is book about Africa. Um, On that trip, I was trying to recreate Stanley and Livingston's journey, and I was with two buddies, and uh, we managed to get arrested and thrown into a local prison, and uh, (laughs) we were held for three days. I literally thought we weren't going to get out. We had no communication with the outside world little things like that, the swimming with the sharks thing was, I was researching a book about Captain Cook, and I went to the place that he actually was murdered on the island of Hawaii. And I thought it would kind of take a look at the seabed just to kind of see what the footing was like, because he wasn't wearing tennis shoes. He wasn't wearing flip-flops. He was wearing <laughs> hard-soled shoes. And back then, shoes didn't even have a left foot or a right foot. It was just, you know, one shoe for you. So anyway, I want to see what it was like to walk on that surface. And as I began swimming out, all of a sudden, I realized that The water that was three feet deep, 50 yards out, turned into 3,000 feet deep. It's like swimming off the edge of a cliff. You know, I'm swimming around out there, and I thought this is the coolest thing ever that I remember was somebody who said that that's where the tiger sharks breed. And, (laughs) you know, a lone man floating around on the surface with the sunlight, you know, backlighting him is going to be food. So I need to back that out of it quick.
0: (laughs) I do think you need to backtrack, however, like sharks, that's fine. We can see those in Hawaii. You need to backtrack. And tell us more about the prison <laughs> experience. How and why?
1: I'll keep it really brief because it's a little <laughs> bit of a horrific story. So we were on the border of Zambia in Tanzania, and border towns are kind of crazy. And the people were gathering in the middle of the street. And as we were going down the street, you know, the the crowds would just part as our as our Land Cruiser would go through. Well, we went to this one area where. The crowd parted, but there was a girl on one side of the street, a little child, like three or four years old. And her mother was on the other side. And the mother was beckoning the girl to come across, even as the car was approaching. And Mm -hmm. our driver, who was the Swahili man named Chawa, actually sped up and he hit the girl. And she flew through the air. And then we were in this thing, like we're saying, stop the car. We're going to go help this person. And as we stopped the car to go help this girl to see what had happened, the mob just descended upon us, you know knives and sticks and clubs since we ran back into the car we literally drove five hours deep into the brush it was we we were out there our our goal was to get to a town find a phone and fix it and what happened was just as we're coming to the next town there was a roadblock there were soldiers with automatic weapons waiting for us they got in the car So I'm literally sitting in the back seat with my buddy and there's a soldier on either side of us with an AK-47, you know, pointed right at our heads and it was pretty hairy. And then it turns out when our driver was talking to the soldiers, he told the soldiers that I had been the driver at the time that I I was driving at the time of the accident. So they just arrested us all. It took us a few days to get it sorted out. The girl was fine. She lived. And it turns Mm -hmm. out they they weren't trying to arrest us because of the girl. They're trying to arrest us because of, some kind of hit and run accident. So Mm. that's one of those moments where you say, I'm kind of over the adventure. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Let's Mm -hmm. go back and regroup. So Mm. that was was touch and go.
0: That does not sound like a great adventure in my opinion. It's not the
1: kind of adventure you get. If you do a a cruise, let's put it that way.
0: (laughs) True, true enough. I would love for you to share more about what happens in taking Paris because Yes, Americans are fascinated by World War II. Yes, we know Hitler was the bad guy. Yes, we know about FDR. Yes, we know about Winston Churchill. You know, like, yeah, that's kind of what we know about. Give us all the juicy details.
1: No, you know, here's the thing is, I don't have an outline for my books. I kind of, I I just start at the start of the story and let the story take me places. And the one character who kind of really comes out of it is Charles de Gaulle. And Mm -hmm. We kind of think of him as this this parisian guy and he was actually pretty bold he believed in france and he when the rest of the government fell and the army capitulated he went to england to work with churchill and be, between the two of them they effectively saved france and then you just go through through all the different people that can you know churchill put commandos in, in in the form of spies in you know virginia hall uh, she was one of them, and in into France. And then you know, de Gaulle worked with the Americans as they as they went through Northern Africa, and kind of bided our time as we made our way towards D-Day. And it was just one of those things where I got to know the resistance, like a woman named Germaine Tillion, who was in charge of a group called uh, Musée de la. She was literally a museum employee by day and a resistance spy by night. Ultimately, betrayed by a Catholic priest who, he had you know you know in the confessional someone was supposed to be able to go confess their sins, and it's a complete secret. The priest can't tell anybody. Well, the people of the resistance would go to confession to confess the fact that they were part of the resistance, and he would go tell the Nazis, and they, they would round all these people up. So she was captured like that. And then you just get all these stories. There was a, you know, like the French Alamo in the desert. They were basically told by the Nazis, you know, surrender or we're going to destroy you. And they not only held on until they had done their job then they snuck out in the dead of night everybody got away just like little nuggets like that little dramatic episodes which really just kind of lifted the story up off the page for me
0: Mm. one of the things that I was struck by when I was reading this was about the evacuation of Paris where the Parisians realized like the Germans are coming and we've got (laughs) to get out of here And 90,000 children separated from their parents, many of whom never saw their parents again. Like the elderly and the sick left behind in Paris while the able-bodied left. Tell everybody more about that story.
1: Well, usually when we think about Paris being evacuated, Paris to us is an abstract concept. So let's make it more relevant. Let's say that uh, the Germans are approaching New York City. And mm-hmm. the people of New York City for for weeks have, have believed that there was no possible way that the Germans would ever be able to take the city. And then when they're like two days away, all of a sudden everybody says, hey, they're coming. We need to get out of here. So imagine New York City, everybody evacuating. You know, you kill your pets because you don't want your pet to go hungry. Mm-hmm. You leave the old people behind. You can all your belongings. You can't really use a car because the the roads are jammed. So You're pushing your stuff along in a cart. Your kids are walking along and they're crying because they're hungry and thirsty. So that's what happened in Paris. And we're not talking about 1,000 people or 10,000 people or even 100,000 people. We're talking about 3 or 4 million people trying to get out of Paris as the Nazis were coming in. And the weird thing about it is they fled the city very successfully. But when they got into the countryside, they realized that the Nazis were there too. So they all had to turn around and go back home. That's when they fled because they knew evil was coming. They go back home to live under evil for the next four years. And that means starvation. It means no heating oil. It means, you know, if you're a collaborator being shot by a German firing squad, all these things slowly descended upon Parisians over the the four years of occupation. Mm.
0: We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right and if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house. And then when people come over, they're like, um, your house smells weird. There's a solution for that. And it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using Lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet. It is a whole body deodorant. It is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's Starter Pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi Starter Pack with code SHARON at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code SHARON. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible, and then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com Sharon masterclass.com slash it. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash Sharon. I think a lot of people forget that Paris lived under Nazi occupation for a a number of years. We think about it just as being like battles, battles, battles and like, oh wow, eventually the allies won. (laughs) this is how this is the summary that i think a lot of americans have in their mind right battles 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 oh the allies won it's like kind of that simple but they i think forget that they literally lived under nazi occupation millions of french soldiers were taken prisoner by the nazis
1: we lack the historical perspective right now because like you said always we think it was like oh d-day and then the Mm -hmm. war's over yes It worked. I mean, the fall of Paris was such a big deal back then that the movie Casablanca was filmed, and I mentioned the book, literally whole love story revolves around the fall of Paris and what that did to the concept of romance and enlightenment and, you know, kind of the extinguishing of of free thinking. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so that that was a whole worldwide concept. Everybody mourned, everybody, even in America, you know, which we weren't world travelers at the time. We didn't have airplane travel that would just take us in 12 hours to Europe. Everybody mourned it. That's why we have a movie like House of Blanket. And that whole four-year period of occupation was one of the things where everybody kind of held their breath around the world, like, we hope Paris is going to be okay. We hope that when the Nazis leave, they don't destroy everything like they did in so many other cities like Rotterdam, in Warsaw, in Sevastopol. And so that's why with the liberation of Paris was such a big deal, because when we finally came in, opened up the city, got the Nazis out, it was such a euphoric moment that everybody assumed that the war was going to end like in a week. Of course, it didn't. It went on for almost another year.
0: Mm. One of the things that struck me, too, when I was reading your book was you talked about how the Nazis did not just plan to take Paris. They planned to destroy it. Oh, yeah! And, like, just bomb it into oblivion, destroy the Eiffel Tower, destroy the Arc de Triomphe. Anything that made Paris noteworthy, they planned to destroy on purpose. And you talked about how Parisians loved Paris so much that they would rather give it to the Germans than see it be destroyed. Tell us more about ultimately why Paris wasn't destroyed.
1: Well, it's a great question. So, you, like you say, in 1940, when the Germans marched in, you know, the soldiers fled, the government fled, and they declared it an open city. They would rather see the Nazis occupy an undestroyed and fully intact Paris because it, it, it's not just a city. So, you know, Paris is a symbol of of all that is open and good, and it was just it, this great symbol of of wonder. And so, they let the, the Germans just come in and take control of the city. Four years later, as the Germans knew that their time was limited, they wired every bridge across the Seine, and I think there are 23 to explode. They're all supposed to be detonated. Every uh, facility that had fuel oil, every electrical plant, everything was completely set up to be destroyed. The Eiffel Tower was mined. There was, you know, they just basically, and and Hitler reportedly kept calling General von Scholtitz, the German commander of the city, saying, "Is Paris burning?" In other words. Have you leveled the city yet, just like we did Warsaw? Get with it. Get with it. (laughs) Get with
0: it. Destroy the city. Hurry it up.
1: Yeah. You know, to tell you the truth, I don't know why von Choltitz didn't do that. All he had to do was blow the stuff up and he could flee the city. And he didn't. He chose not to do that. And I still to this day, there's a lot of conjecture about it. But we're richer for it. Mm. Because if you look at a lot of the European cities that were destroyed in World War II, either were bombed or the scene of great fighting... The, the post-World War II architecture was that boxy.
0: Yeah, brutalism. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it looked horrible. And so, and you walk around Paris now, and actually, when I'm going to be there in a week. I can't wait. My first post-COVID Paris trip, it's timeless. It's just a wonderful, wonderful city. I can't imagine that all being destroyed.
0: Mm-hmm. April 4th, about... 1943, being a quietly remarkable day. For World War II, we think about D Day. We, of course, think about Pearl Harbor Day. We think about the day that we dropped bombs on Japan. But tell us more about why April 4th, 1943, was a quietly remarkable day.
1: First of all, did you like that chapter? I did. (laughs) I spent about three weeks polishing that chapter. It was just because I just wanted to get it just right. It was the day that we accidentally bombed Paris, The, the Allies bombed Paris. It's one of those things where we were trying to just hit a single plant, a citron plant that was it was making vehicles for the Germans, and instead, some of the bombs went astray, and a lot of people lost their lives. And the point I wanted to make in that is that, like you said, we we remember Pearl Harbor. We remember this December 7th. You know, we remember D-Day was June 6th. But for the people who lost someone on that day, or, and the people who themselves died that day, that's the most memorable day of the war. I pointed out that's, that's the day that maybe somebody Will remember it because they told someone that they love them for the first time or or someone got married or something like that. But it, it is a quietly remarkable day, but it's also remarkable for it. its tragedy despite our good intentions.
0: One of the other things that, you know, the more I study World War II, and of course you could literally study it for your entire life and not learn all the things. One of the feelings that I have, and I want to hear from you if you have the same feeling, is that the lead up to the allies taking France it just seemed to take forever like I wanted it to be faster (laughs) you know what I mean like the planning I mean obviously they were trying to um not just win one battle they were aimed at trying to win the war and there was a lot of strategy and I'm not going to pretend that I know a lot about military strategy but it was just like it is taking us years (laughs) to get in here and get this job done why (laughs) why did it take so long I want it to be now I want it to be like let's fix it
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah your enthusiasm is infectious, I have to say. <laughs> uh, that was something I learned. I always kind of thought that, hey, the USA, come to the rescue. Britain's all yes! over. Yes, make we're it happen. Well, I mean, for starters, at the at the beginning of the war, in the, in the pecking order of the world's great armies, we were 17th. We were just one rung below Romania. We didn't have a standing army between wars. We didn't have that that we didn't have the munitions, we didn't have the men, we didn't have the trained soldiers, you know, and I'm just talking about soldiers, but people who have been physically equipped to go onto a battlefield. And so working with President Roosevelt, Churchill kept pushing Roosevelt to do an invasion, but Roosevelt kept backing it off, you know, moving it back a year, moving, you know, Mm -hmm. we've got this plan, we're gonna ignore that plan. I, I honestly think that if Stalin in the East, the Russian, our Russian ally, Hadn't pushed us to finally open up a second front by invading France, I think we might have waited e- even another year. It's just mm-hmm. like that. And when we finally went in, we had s- such a huge army. We had so many new tanks. We had the most up-to-date equipment. By then, we had gone from the 17th to you know the best army in the world. But it took forever. And imagine you're a citizen of Paris, and every day you look, li- you know, you take your radio, your forbidden radio, out of its hiding place, and you listen to. With the BBC from London, you're waiting for that signal that, yes, the invasion is coming. Yes, we're going to be liberated. And for four long years, as life gets worse and worse and worse, and people right. are going in prison, they're starving. And when they finally show up, they finally show up, Paris just erupted in this great celebration.
0: Champagne. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, this is one of the things that I love about learning history is people ask me this all the time. Like, is this... The worst it has ever been in the whole history of time. Like they, they <laughs> look at what's happening now and they feel like the sense of um, the sense of doom, the sense of dread. We're so politically divided. We have COVID. We have Afghanistan. Like we have so many things that make people feel like the weight of the world is heavy. Studying history Some of it is shocking. Some of it is like, I can't believe that happened. But it also gives me a tremendous amount of hope because it is like, did you, did we live under Nazi occupation for four years? No. Is it currently as bad as the people of Paris experienced for four years with blackouts and starvation? And we had to kill our pets. And where did the kids go? I don't know. And had to leave grandma back. Like, No. It's not as bad (laughs) now (laughs) as it was then. Do you ever have those feelings where you're like, dang, that was bad?
1: 9 11. 9 11 Mm -hmm. was shocking for me. I still remember what I was doing. I was actually starting a book. I took a break. I walked in. The Today Show was on, and they were showing this little plane that had just flown. You know, people thought it was a Cessna. To me, that was, you know, as, as someone who, knows his history pretty well that was a shocking moment but i'll tell you what writing a book about the occupation of paris during covid there's still food in those grocery stores your house is still heated it's and it's not going to be forever and Mm -hmm. and can you imagine if covid had gone on for you know the the real shutdown early days covid imagine that going on for four years right exactly yeah that's (laughs) that's nuts that is really nuts
0: obviously many people today were not alive uh, during World War II in the United States, but even the rationing that was occurring in the United States. And I also think about like the blackouts in London and Paris, where people were forced to live in darkness. We again feel like, oh my gosh, we're like Nazi Germany over here in the United States. And my immediate reaction is like, no, no, (laughs) no, (laughs) like that is that just shows that you did not pay attention at all.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I was I was talking to somebody the they were talking about with all the social media like Anne Frank would not have been able to, you know, page 1 in her journal in, in, you know in this modern times because she would have been hidden somebody on social media would say, "Hey, Anne, Anne Frank's hiding in the top of that house." I mean, mm-hmm. it's just a different time. Yeah, I mean, this is not Nazi Germany. And you know, no. you know imagine people literally Come into your house in the dead of night, pulling you out of bed for no reason and taking you to the outside of town and shooting you dead for no rationale whatsoever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's Nazi Germany. And what we have going on in America right
0: now is just societal- Fails activity. in comparison. Yes. And it's, it is an unfair comparison. And I feel like it's a disrespectful comparison to the millions of people that the Nazis brutally slaughtered. It is a disrespectful comparison to their, to their memories and to their families. To say completely. America today is like the Nazis,
1: you're getting me so fired up. Yeah, <laughs> I completely agree with you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is one of those things that really just chaps my hide when people yeah. <laughs> when people bring that up. I just like I could go on a fifteen minute tangent about it. <laughs> All right, bringing it back around here, Sharon. Talking about your book, Taking Paris, one of the things I would love to hear you tell us more about is the role of Eisenhower in this war, because we know him as a president, but we don't know that much about him as a military general.
1: Well, that's interesting. Yeah, Um, he was the the head of everything in Europe. You know, he was a very diplomatic guy. What people don't know is he never commanded troops in the field ever. He was just somebody who had worked his way up to the general position because he was very good. At bring alliances together, you know, building bridges. And that's what makes him so pivotal to the story because at a time when he really didn't want to liberate Paris, because we could have bypassed Paris. I mean, yes. It, you know, all of a sudden we have to give them fuel. We have to feed them. And you know, it's not like we're not giving them an apple. We're mm-hmm. feeding family three meals a day. That's a lot of stuff. He realized that the right thing to do, not the militarily right thing to do. But almost the romantic thing to do, and you don't think of generals as being romantic, but the romantic thing to do was liberate Paris. If if we hadn't done that, the Germans would have remained in Paris longer because we would have surrounded them, and they probably would have destroyed the city, given more time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I like uh, like
0: Out of spite, they would yes. have destroyed the city. Yes. Absolutely out of spite. Yes. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple scientifically validated solutions the secret is Oneskin's proprietary os1 peptide it's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines wrinkles and thinning skin i especially like the eye cream it's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores but it goes on really really nicely under makeup For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON. One of the things that I loved hearing you talk about was Charles de Gaulle's speech about there is one hope for us all.
1: You know, I just re-listened to that uh, in the original French because I just when I did the book, I I kind of watched the YouTube of it and I wasn't really paying attention, but I heard the audio, which is when you're not, you know, looking at an image of de Gaulle, you just hear his voice mm-hmm. and. It's such a powerful speech, and it's not very long at all, but he makes it very, very clear. I mean, he's kind of a crazy man. He doesn't have any authority, but he goes to England and he says, hey, I am France. I am here. And he basically rallies the French people slowly to the notion that he's not a crazy man, that he is actually going to come rescue France. And he was not polite about it. Him and Churchill did not like each other after a while. They had many arguments and de Gaulle finally had to leave London because he needed to go someplace where he was a little bit more welcome. But I think without his perseverance, we don't have a modern Paris. We don't even have a modern France because he continued that passion to the country after the war was over. I didn't know much about de Gaulle before writing the book. And he's kind of an odd duck because, you know, he's like tall. They, they compared his little head to uh, the tip of an, an, asparagus They made fun of his broad hips. They said that he he had a woman's hips, um, get a very big nose, Uh, chain-smoked Gitan cigarettes. But at the same time, he had this indefatigable belief that what he was doing was right. And he refused to back down or be cowed in any way. So you have to be just a little bit crazy to think that that's your destiny. And he was somebody who did believe in destiny.
0: I love this quote that you included. The Battle of France has begun. In the nation, the empire, and the armies, there is no longer anything but one single hope, the same for all. Behind the terribly heavy cloud of our blood and our tears, here is the sunshine of our grandeur come out again.
1: Uh, isn't that beautiful?
0: It's absolutely beautiful yeah. and applies absolutely to today as well. There's one hope.
1: Yeah, I, I agree love with it.
0: That. Yeah. I love it. I would love to hear more about your process for writing your killing series books and what it's like to collaborate on writing those.
1: Uh, you know, I was a little scared at first. You know,
0: because <laughs> tell was, everybody who you write them with.
1: I write them with Bill O'Reilly. And Bill and I, at one time, we had the same agent and he connected us to do these books. And it was supposed to be a one off Killing Lincoln, a one time book. We're done. We walk away. <laughs> and what happened was I was up in the mountains with my, with my family and my agent called and said, we've got a client that wants to meet with you. Need to be in New York in two days. This was at a time in 2009 when the economy had collapsed. The publishing industry had collapsed. The only books that were selling were not history books. They were cookbooks and celebrity tell-alls. And I was just basically looking for work. I wanted to keep writing. So I flew to New York. I go to the restaurant. Of course, you know, Bill O'Reilly, big, tall guy, uh, very intimidating sitting at the table agent was there, but he never looked at the agent once. He kept studying me throughout the whole meal, like trying to see if I was, you know, legit. And at the end of the meal, I got the job. And so again, it was supposed to be a one-off. So basically he said, start the book. And we didn't really have our process down yet. So my job was to research. So I research, 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 and I love it because I'm a nerd. So I can sit in my office all day long. I can research at length, Way, 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 way down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And then I write up a rough version of it, send it to Bill. And if this is long enough to go that I send it by fax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's how long we've been doing these books. And then um, Bill reads it, Bill rewrites it in his voice. Then we get on the phone together and we combine what I wrote and what he wrote into one seamless document. And the cool thing about it is, Bill has that radio and TV background. So mm-hmm. when we get on the phone, we both have a copy of the manuscript in front of us, and he reads it out loud, which I think is, mm. is something that young writers should, should think about it incorporating,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because if you read something out loud, you can see where a sentence goes a little wonky,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or if it doesn't really roll off your tongue, it's going to read the same way. If, it, if it's not smooth, it's not going to work,
0: mm-hmm. and so
1: we do that, and we uh, <laughs> it's funny because after Killing Lincoln did well, we did Killing Kennedy, Killing Jesus, you know, then blah, blah, blah. We just finished the eleventh book in the series, but Bill is famous for when he has a spare moment because he's a big workaholic. It might be eleven o'clock at night in New York, and I'm in California, and he'll he'll call me and go, Hey, can you work? It's like, all right, I can work. That's fine. <laughs> so I've gotten in the habit of taking my laptop with me. If we're in the middle of a book, it goes with me everywhere because we have done these calls. I've been I've been in the the parking lot of a track meet. I've been you name it. I've, I have written this book in the most outlandish locations. uh including an
0: African one, prison.
1: But pretty close. I'll tell you what, we, <laughs> we were finishing up Killing the Rising Sun, and it was our last phone call of that book. And my wife and I were on Guam visiting my son, who's a Navy pilot. He was stationed there at the time. We were in our hotel room, and Bill was in New York. He didn't know that I was in Guam. And he called me and says, hey, let's work. It was, like, it was two o'clock in the morning and gone. We had to get up at five o'clock for a flight. But I dragged a chair into the bathroom, closed the door, got the computer out. We've spent three hours on the phone. We wrapped it up just as my wife is getting up at 5 a.m. to get ready for the flight home. And she's like, <laughs> what the hell are you doing in the bathroom? <laughs> I'm working. So that's kind of that's our process. You, you just you got to be flexible. There's a lot of back and forth. And it's it's been a lot of fun
0: how many more killing books are you gonna write well we're
1: we're supposed to stop at one then we're supposed to (laughs) at three and then you know they kept giving us people keep dying people (laughs) keep dying and people i mean 18 million people have read these books
0: it's incredible
1: yeah it's crazy and it's like you know what i like about it is i'm the silent partner in this group so nobody recognizes me in the grocery store or something like that. Right. Build is all the publicity. So like doing publicity right now for my own book like this. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a novelty. It's like, it's been so long since I've done it. And it's fun, but uh, we just finished 11 and it comes out in May. And we're talking about 12. So.
0: <laughs> There's still a lot of dead people to write there, about. There
1: are a lot of dead people. <laughs> I get so many emails from, uh, readers who say, you need to kill this guy, you need to kill that guy. <laughs> like, I don't make that decision. That's Bill's call, right? To Bill.
0: <laughs> that says a lot about you, because a lot of people would not be interested in collaborating on 11 books with one person. You know, like, I think about even trying to collaborate on one book with somebody, I would be like, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I would mean? be Like, I don't know. I don't know.
1: I got. to I've got to say, I've collaborated more in a ghostwriter capacity with i can think of three very well-known people in mm-hmm. all three projects halfway through we've just agreed to disagree and mm-hmm. have walked away because mm-hmm. once we got known as bill's collaborator a lot of people are like oh let's get that guy yeah and a lot of people aren't willing to do the work that bill is willing to do or they'll say you know fly out of here and we'll sit down in this room together for six days and we'll hammer out this book it's like that's not how it works I genuinely enjoy working with Bill. We've got a good routine. We know each other's rhythms and it it works pretty well.
0: Mm. I can relate to the idea of going down the research rabbit hole because I do that for this podcast. You know, like today I'm prepping for an episode about why are the Iowa caucuses so much sooner than everybody else's like in presidential elections. And that leads you deep down into the rabbit hole of the 1968 presidential uh, democratic primaries. And then like, and what was happening in 1968? Oh, they killed Martin Luther King. Oh, they shot Robert Kennedy. Oh, and how did they end up with him as a nominee when they shouldn't have And What were the police doing in Chicago? Like you, I bet you understand that where you're like, where do I exit this ride?
1: (laughs) No, that's the thing is you don't, you don't exit. You you know, you have to You keep going because you'll, you'll hit a dead end. Then you take a left turn. You go, you keep going further down. And then I'm sure you go through this at the end of the day, you have all this data in your head yes. and no one to talk to about it. And
0: yes. You're like, you're trying to tell your spouse. If you're like, did you know? Oh yeah. But my, my husband's like, no, I didn't know that, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Were you like that as a child? the person who wanted to acquire knowledge and then disseminate the knowledge.
1: I'm going to preface saying that I was an otherwise normal child. I played little league, (laughs) Um, you know, I ran cross country. Uh, I played catch in the backyard with my dad, played football. It was all those things. And yet my dad was an air force pilot and one of the places we were stationed. We were almost right next to the base library. And I spent so much time in the base library that when my dad was transferred, the librarians gave me a going away party. I read 333 books in one summer when I was seven years old. Oh my
0: goodness. a little bit of
1: a nerd. But, you know, I don't like the kind of knowledge where you go to a cocktail party and you say, here's all the stuff I know. I'm just curious. I I just like to, you know, get stuff figured out. Mm
0: -hmm. To me, the acquisition of knowledge is almost like brain fuel. It's almost like uh, somebody who's running a marathon or on a bike marathon where you have to fuel your body to keep going. That is almost what it feels like in my brain. Like I got to learn this stuff because that is what makes life worthwhile for me.
1: I completely agree. And the thing that I struggle with is I want to always give an honest answer when people ask a question like, did you know this? And if I don't know it, I'm not going to try to BS my way through and say, yeah, I know that. And I don't want to be that guy. Right. But if I'm asked a question and if I'm curious enough, after the, I'm asked that question, I'll research it just to kind of add to this quiver of knowledge.
0: That's right. It's almost like any collection that somebody has. What are you doing with your shot glasses from around the world? Nothing. <laughs> They're sitting on your wall. What are you doing with all this information? I am enjoying having it. I, um, that's what I'm doing with it.
1: I, I once had a shot glass collection. <laughs> I, I, literally, I literally did. <laughs> my, my wife said that that thing is like, why do you have all these shot glasses? I said because they're memories. She goes, keep a couple, you know. <laughs> uh,
0: I did not know you had a shot glass collection. That just was the first idea. Oh, no, I was I was
1: admiring your research. So. <laughs> like with this book, with taking Paris. Yeah. I spent six hours a day living in World War II Paris, or in the in the desert sands, or in the during the African War. And you have to mentally and emotionally transport yourself to that place. Yes. When I come out of my office and I go into the house, my wife literally will say, please don't drive your car for about an hour because you're not here. You're you're (laughs) still there. And it's it's a thing. You just you you go someplace else for six hours a day, then you have to come back to the real world in. It's not as interesting, maybe.
0: <laughs> you're like, there are dishes here that I'm supposed <laughs> yeah. to take care of.
1: <laughs> wow. You're on a mission. You're inside my house.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been so fun chatting with you. I would love to hear, what would you love for the reader to take away from your book?
1: You know, when you read a really good book, it just kind of stays with you for a while. I want that. I want people to say, I just wrote a really good story. I want to tell my friends about it. I'm gonna keep this book because maybe I'm gonna reread it in a year or two. Um, But for the most part, I want them to get done and kind of have this subconscious belief that history is not boring. History is is exciting and even more exciting than any great novel because these things are really happening. And even the most outlandish things, the things that people say could never happen, they happen in history. And I love finding those moments and bringing them to life.
0: I totally relate to that. I I call them brain tangle moments where you're like, what? And then you (laughs) want to go to work and be like, did you know that that actually happened?
1: Yes, right. Exactly. (laughs) Just like that.
0: Well, this has been a really fun chatting with you. I really enjoyed your book and I really think a lot of people will enjoy reading Taking Paris, even if you're not a military history buff, even if you're not like, oh, let me read about the Panzer tanks or the Blitzkrieg, just the incredible cinematic sweep of oh, World you. War II history. I think people will enjoy it. It's just very tightly written. And it really moves along. It's not a boring tome.
1: <laughs> so good
0: that. job not Thank writing you. a boring tome, Martin. Thank
1: you. That, <laughs> I've done my job. The work, work here is
0: done. I'm out. <laughs> so. And that is where we will end it. And, <laughs> and um, soon. Thanks again for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast.